0: If you'll stand for our reading of God's word, and I'm going to read today from Matthew 8, 1 through 4, and then we will read together the passage on the front of that insert from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And if you don't have a bulletin or an insert, they are on that table at the entranceway. Hear God's word from Matthew 8. Then Jesus, when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And then the passage we've been sort of jumping off of for the last few weeks and will continue this passage known as the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, would you read that with me? But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All right, you may be seated. Let me pray and we will look at this text. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this Thanksgiving week that many of us in our lives have many things about which to be thankful, but we are mindful that some among us and some in our own families and people we know are struggling to have things for which they're thankful. Suffering has touched their lives. Suffering has touched our lives. And it is hard to see darkness crowds in. We pray that in this season, the light of the gospel would dawn, even in our sorrow, that uh, Your resilient love for us would create in us a certain type of resiliency as a people, as a corporate, local church, that we would be resilient in loving each other uh, and demonstrating kindness, as we're going to look at this morning, uh, as a foretaste of the coming kingdom, which it is, and as a reflection of the kindness we've received in Christ, which we have. So, open our eyes now. We are disinclined sometimes to speak clearly. unable to speak clearly sometimes. Sometimes it's easy not to hear clearly, especially things that are challenging. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would clear all that away help us to see, understand, and know you better. In Christ's name, amen. This passage I just read, Jesus, with a heart of kindness, seeks the true welfare of a man who's an outcast, who's broken down, who's suffering. And, uh, that kind of welfare-seeking is what Jesus has done to us and for us. One of the, often considered one of the best novels of all time is Victor Hugo's novel, and i got to say this first, some, there are some French speakers among us. I am not that. Please do not judge what I'm about to say, okay? Um, you can correct me if you want later, but it won't make any difference. I'll say it the next service, I'll say it the same wrong way probably. Uh, the novel... Les Mis, Les Miserables, Les Miserables, probably if you're French, Uh, it's uh, often considered one of the best novels of all time. I've never read the whole thing. It's like 1,500 pages in the Penguin Classic Edition, so it's just, but I've seen, you know, it's been turned into a lot of musicals, Broadway musicals, TV musicals. Recently, most famously perhaps with Russell Crowe and uh, Hugh Jackman, I don't know what Victor Hugo would have thought of Wolverine and Gladiator being the two leads in his, his uh, novel. But nonetheless, it follows the story of a man named Jean Valjean who was arrested as a relatively young man. It's is set in, in uh, 19th century France and a lot of upheaval. He's arrested because he steals a loaf of bread for his sister and her starving children. And for the, uh, the punishment for stealing a loaf of bread in the novel's quite oppressive system was five years in jail. And the story, the, the under, the subtext of the story is the unjust social structures of which there were and are. Five years in jail, and during that time, uh, Jean Valjean tries to escape and he gets caught. And any, Anyway, he ends up spending 19 or 20 years in prison as a result of stealing this bread. And he, in that time, he, be, he changes. He becomes a hardened man. He lives in an increasingly small and bitter and mean world filled with himself and his own desires. He becomes a hardened criminal. And the antagonist in the story, Inspector Jobert, Jovert, uh, played by Russell Crowe, uh, is the antagonist. And when Valjean is released from prison, he says, Jean Valjean, you will never change. People like you, never change. You're, you're a criminal and you will always be a criminal and you will end up back here one day. And when uh, he's finally released, Jean Valjean is a different man than he went in. He's unpleasant. He's hardened. He's ruthless. And a kindly, he gets out, and a kindly Catholic bishop, Bishop um, Muriel, takes pity on him and brings him into his house. And you, may, you guys may know this story, but um, I encourage you at least to watch the musical. Maybe you can find a better one than Hugh Jackman. but. Uh, Bishop Muriel takes him into his house. Bishop Muriel is is a poor Catholic bishop. He has just a little bit of wealth wrapped up in two silver candlesticks and two silver plates. And Jean Valjean notices this. And one day in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean leaves and steals the silver plates, half of all of the bishop's wealth. And he goes off into the night Um, the one thing Valjean's not very good at is being a criminal and he gets caught again by the police they recognize the silver they bring him back to the bishop and say Bishop Muriel we have found the man who stole your silver and Bishop Muriel understands what's going to happen if he says yes you stole my silver Jean Valjean will spend the rest of his life in prison and die there and the bishop says oh he didn't steal that I gave it to him and then he looks at Jean Valjean and says Jean you forgot the candlesticks I gave it all to you, and you only took half. Here's the candlesticks. And so, he, so the, the police have no reason to hold him. They let him go. And uh, Bishop Muriel gives Jean Valjean all of his wealth in the plates and the candlesticks. And he says this after the police have left. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from your black thoughts and the spirit of perdition and I give it back to God. So, and then the next, in the book, I haven't gotten to the end of the book, but in the book, usually not captioned to play for a length of time, uh, Jean Valjean has a crisis. Because grace is offensive to him. It doesn't fit his worldview. He's become this calmly hardened criminal who just creates, does criminal acts without thinking about it. And in the next chapter of the book, we have these words. There came over Valjean a strange emotion opposed to the hardness that he had acquired during the 20 years in prison. He perceived with dismay that that frightful calm which the injustice of his misfortune had conferred upon him was giving way. He was conscious that this pardon from the bishop, this celestial kindness was the greatest assault and most formidable attack he had ever experienced. So he had fought against, you know, he had been in prison fights. He had set himself against the law. But when this kindness of grace was done to him, Valjean said, this is the biggest foe I have ever experienced. Because grace is the biggest threat to our self-sufficiency that we can experience. And he recognizes this and he submits to it. And it changes him. And the rest of the novel of Les Miserables is about the reformation of Jean Valjean, in part. There's, there's tons of storylines. There's 365 chapters. So like, there's lots of storylines. They're short chapters. Um, he becomes a champion for other people, he becomes a champion for the downtrodden. He becomes a reformer. He starts a factory and employs many people. He's very popular. He even becomes a mayor of this small French town. And he's changed by this single act of kindness. And the story leaves us with this question, can a single act of kindness really create change in a person's life? Well, Victor Hugo, the writer, was a Christian. And he knew something about the gospel. Namely, that there is a, a type of kindness done to us that can create a certain type of kindness in us. There's a kindness done to us that creates a type of kindness in us and through us. And that's essentially the bigger story of the gospel. What we're driving at today, and this is on the in, in your insert on the top left in red, as we continue to make our way through this ninefold description of the fruit of the spirit, is that kindness is cultivated in us as we grasp the kindness of Jesus to us. Kindness, true kindness is cultivated in us as we grasp the kindness of Jesus to us. And so we're looking at kindness today, which is different than, we have an English word we use sort of for kind as nice. That just doesn't capture it, frankly. Nice is too soft. Kindness is rugged. It is strong. But before we look at kindness, we're halfway through this ninefold description of the fruit of the Spirit. And I just want to step back and remind ourselves of what's happening as the Spirit bears fruit in and through us. And by the way, this isn't exhaustive, this these ninefold description. Uh, there's there's more, right? Spirit's doing more than just these nine things. Like thankfulness isn't mentioned in here, humility, forgiveness. There's more things, but but these nine are what we're looking at. And we've said it's we're not just becoming more loving or joyful or peaceful or patient. I preached a very weighty sermon on patience last week. I heard about the patience sermon. I wasn't here, but I heard about it. And then I listened to it. And in God's providence, I listened to it on the way to Costco. And then Costco, Thanksgiving is in Costco, and the checkout line starts in the meat department. And if you know anything about Costco, you're like, I'm so thankful I listened to it. But it's not just about acquiring these singular moral virtues bringing it into our life. More peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more gentleness, more faithfulness, more self-control. What is being cultivated in you, friend, Christian, through the Spirit. Let's look at John 15. We're going to step this as a sort of a review before we get into kindness. Jesus writes in John 15, and this is in your insert. He writes, I am the true vine, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Here's the picture. If we are in Christ by faith, we have a connection to him as a branch to a vine. Now, we have to get back in the ancient Near East mindset that it's a picture of probably a grapevine, but you have the vine, which is the main life-giving source of the plant and a little branch that comes off it and what's connected to the branch is the fruit. So in our world, branch for trees is big. Think of small. Branch is small coming off the vine and the, the fruit is attached to the branch. All this is saying is that you and I aren't the source of anything. But we're connected to the one who is. If in Christ by faith, we're connected to Jesus and his life flows in us, to us, and through us out into the world. As we, as it says here, abide in him or remain in him or stay in him. That means as we constantly trust him as we stay close through ongoing repentance. I said at the beginning of the service, the requirement of meeting Jesus and receiving from him is lack and need. We repent, right? We say, Lord, I have lack and you have fullness and I come to you. This is return over and over and over again. This is a means of abiding in him. As we nurture that relationship, as we do that, his life actually flows in us, to us, and through us. So the all-lasting change lasting positive change in your life will come from this source, Jesus. You can do some like self-help. Like you can get some behavior modification. I get that. You know, you can read Atomic Habits. You can like make some changes in your life and all that cool stuff. That's fine. But that's actually not the depth change Jesus is offering. Real, true, lasting spiritual fruit that looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, real kindness is sourced in Jesus. And he offers it to us But these are not individual moral virtues. There's something much bigger going on here, even in this little passage in John 15. And we get at it by asking a simple question. What kind of fruit does a watermelon vine produce? It's not a trick question. Watermelon. I don't know if you knew that kiwi grew on a vine. Kiwi grows on a vine. What kind of vine does a kiwi plant produce? Kiwi. So what kind of vine does a grape, or what kind of fruit does a grape vine produce? Grapes. Okay. What kind of, I don't want to be, what kind of vine, what kind of fruit does a Jesus vine produce? Jesus. What? What this is saying, guys, is if you're in Christ by faith and you remain in Christ, abide in him, he produces his own life, the fullness of that, in you, through you, and through you to others. Not just one little moral thing here, one little, did we collect this? Oh, kindness, I like that. Oh, some patience, I need that, especially for Costco, all this kind of stuff. No, we're talking about Jesus producing his life in us. Flowing to us and through us to others. And so let's put that together with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 4. This is the chapter just before this passage where the fruit of the Spirit is. Paul, in addressing this problem in the church in Galatians, says, my little children, for whom I am again in ang- the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Paul saying, "I want to see Jesus, the fullness of Jesus formed in you." Now he's talking to the whole church; that's collective. Also, the nerds would say there's a distributive property to that you, where it's each individual. Also, so he's saying to us, "New city, we want to see Christ formed in us together, but also in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, you, and you individually, distributively, Christ being formed." So. So when we, we get together, the elders get together and pray a couple times a month for this congregation, we take out the, mem- the attendee list and just pray through. Largely what we're praying for is this. We want to see Jesus formed in each of you. That's it. That we have a wonderful plan for your life. And it looks like this. Jesus is formed in you. That Jesus' life flows into your life and comes out in your life in a way that's appropriate to you. That's what we're praying for. And I hope that's what you're asking for us too. And we're asking and praying for each other. It's both collective and individual. I remember in my, I have this latent memory of my, one of my grandmas, my grandma lived out rural area on a farm. She had in her house a, a woven tapestry on the wall, which you may have never seen that. It's just, it was, I think it was something really uncreative. She lived on a farm and it was like a tapestry of a farm, but um, it's what she had. So a tapestry is, a, you have these vertical threads in, in yarn, but then, hor- I think that's the warp, and the weft goes uh, horizontally, and there's, there's different colors of yarn. So there's eight, ten different colors of yarn or thread, and it's woven through, and each different color is used to make a different shape or whatever, And the, so the threads of different colors all kind of bump up against each other, and in the back, they're all tied and knotted together, and it's all kind of jumbled. and, but, and it, So up, up close... Uh, it can look confusing and uneven, imperfect, messy. But all these threads are of different colors are woven together. But as you step back, what emerges is a picture. Even though up close you're like, I don't know, it looks kind of messy. What emerges is a picture. I think a way to think about the fruit of the spirit and the life of Christ in it is this: oh, that ninefold description. Just consider that nine different colors of thread woven into your life. Up close, I know it looks messy. It looks messy in mine too. It's uneven. It's imperfect. But as you step back, a picture begins to emerge. In your life, and that is the picture of Jesus actually living in you and through you. And it takes time, it takes time, and it's messy. God is about process, if you haven't noticed. I was reading a book this week, and the author just mentioned that, you know, whether you believe that creation happened in six days of 24 hours or six billion years, I don't really care what you believe. Either way, God wasn't limited. God could have done it like that, right? He didn't need six days. He takes time to even to make beautiful, perfect things. Jesus himself st- takes on flesh and works as a carpenter, and he's a kid, and he works as a carpenter. 30 years later, he begins his ministry, which took Three years so Jesus doesn't drop out of the sky fully formed as a man and right right onto the cross he could have God's about taking time even for things that are sinless even for things that he calls good he's definitely about taking time for me and for you this forming of Jesus in us takes time One of the things we have stolen from an author named Dallas Willard is this. I put this in your insert here. This is sort of our vision of individual discipleship. Willard writes this, "I sort of rooted in union with Christ. He says, as a disciple of Jesus, I really encourage you to look at this part, because if you're just listening, this is word salad. So I just need you to look at it for a second. As a disciple of Jesus, I am with him by choice and by grace. Learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. And here's, here's the, the money sentence. I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. Let me read that again. I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I'm not necessarily learning to, to do everything he did but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner that He did all that He did. That I realize that that's the first time you're hearing that. You're like, "Whoa, that's a lot of a lot of words together." We uh, another way we say it is this: You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're an apprentice to Christ. You're apprenticing life, and you're learning from Jesus how He would lead your life if He were in your shoes if you're married, if he was married to your spouse, if he had your personal history of brokenness, of sorrow, of success, if he had your parents, if he had your abilities or lack thereof, if he had your hopes, dreams, fears, whatever, we're learning from Jesus how he would lead that life. So that something about this to me is beautifully powerful and simple, but not simplistic. So that means that Roger, that's me, as an apprentice of Jesus, is going to look different than, say, Paul Johnson as an apprentice of Jesus. Though, hopefully, there'll be a lot of similarities, family similarities. But that's going to be different because Paul and Roger are different people. And each of you are different people. So your apprenticeship to Jesus is going to look different than each person's, but there's distinct similarities. And one identical similarity that you're learning from Jesus how to lead this life and you're united to him and his life is flowing in you and through you. And so I think application wise, we often get very concerned about the what of our life. Like the what am I doing for a living? What does my bank account look like? What is my relationship status? What is my level of happiness? What life do I have right now? And I, those aren't necessarily bad questions, but it does seem to me the picture of the New, the New Testament gives us a different picture, a different question to ask, and that is how. How am I living the life that I do have right now? Before, what, do I, what is my life like and how can I change it? As I'm abiding... Am I living as an apprentice of Jesus right where I am? That's the first question, guys. Uh, is He being formed of me right now? In my job, in my marriage, if that's appropriate, in my friendships, in my conflict with others, in my suffering, in my joy. Am I disappointment? Some of you are disappointed right now. I understand that. And you say, when will this end? What's my life like? Can it change? Those all may be genuine questions. Fine. I don't want to deny you those questions, but don't forget to ask, how am I living with Jesus in the middle of this suffering right now? That's where God meets us. I'm not dismissing it. I'm not saying you should just get used to it. It's going to be forever. But how are you living with Jesus in the midst of it right now? That's the question. Is that the vision? I just ask you for your own life. Is that the vision for your kids, if you have kids, that you want to see Jesus formed in them? Do we think it'll just happen with our kids? It won't just happen. (laughs) Or if it just happens, it's just the Holy Spirit working in spite of parents. Okay, speaking as a parent. All right. That's all preview. What's Jesus doing with his fruit? He's forming himself in us. It's much bigger than one like, little individual thing. Like, I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. That's all great. But he's actually forming his own life in us. I think that's a much better story. Like, that means every point in our life is like on the very edge of like, it's spiritual warfare, it's sin, it's grace. It's so exciting. We're life, the little parts of life become very exciting then. Okay. So what is true kindness here? Let's move on to kindness. So a uh, little Book recommendation by a young author, theologian named Jonathan Landry Cruz. Wrote a book called The Character of Christ, subtitled The Fruit of the Spirit and the Life of Our Savior. It's like 12 bucks on Amazon. It's super short. You could read it over, you know, a week or so and you felt good because you've read a book. Um, It's good devotional material. But anyway, Jonathan Landry Cruz defines kindness as the disposition of the heart that seeks the true welfare of others. I like that, it's tight. The disposition of the heart that seeks the true welfare of others. And remember, Jesus' life is being um, reproduced in us. So let's look at one episode of Jesus' kindness that is being, that type of kindness being reproduced in us as we trust in him. And we already read it, Matthew 8, verse one. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So here's Jesus, he's been teaching for a long time, he's just finished what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, which was just a snapshot of all the teaching that he did. So he's tired. So after two sermons on a Sunday, in a climate-controlled environment, with a microphone and a friendly crowd, I come home and sleep almost every Sunday especially if there's football on, turn on, you know. But we are, it's so tiring. I don't know why that is. And I think like, I'm called to do this, but still it's exhausting. But I'm weak sauce, man. Look, at Jesus, so he's teaching outside all day, no amplification, so he's yelling. If you've ever had to do an outside speech, it is exhausting. You're projecting and the wind's blowing. Uh, he's in the Galilean countryside, He has to walk up and down a mountain to make the speech and the crowd is partially hostile to what he's saying. So he's tired. Remember, Jesus is fully human and as we say in his state of humiliation subject to all human limitations and weaknesses physically, he's tired. How do you act when you're tired? You know, I know I'm short with people. I'm tempted to ignore people when I'm tired. Jesus is tired. He gets no privacy. In fact, he says great crowds are following him. Verse two, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So a guy with a skin disease, maybe it's leprosy, which we call Hansen's disease, or maybe some other sort of contagious skin disease, it's obvious enough for Matthew to see or the gospel writers to see, comes to Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet. Now, in that culture, if you had that skin disease, any kind of skin disease, you were supposed to stay away. Mosaic law said you were supposed to yell out, unclean, unclean, sort of self-quarantine, everybody stay away from me. And then later, Jewish law gave uh, distances you were supposed to stay away from people, at least eight feet, but if the wind was blowing, up to 100 feet. Just in case. Uh So this man is breaking all kinds of social custom, right? Great crowds are following Jesus all around him. And he comes and gets down at Jesus' feet and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Um, And Jesus is in a tough situation here, right? So the Old Testament Mosaic law says this guy kind of shouldn't be doing this. But Jesus has just preached in Matthew 5, 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is the fulfillment of these clean laws. And people are like, what's he going to do? Like, there's a lot of pressure in this situation. It's kind of like when some pastor gets a microphone shoved in his face and is asked about some issue about sexuality. Like, oh boy, you know, you're going to, there's landmines everywhere. If you say anything, the wrong thing is hyperlinked to all these kind of things and you're canceled right? Jesus like, is in this really tense situation. So these people are watching him. Surely the crowds are going to jump back. Like, what is this guy doing? He's dangerous. He's contagious, because he was. And he says, Jesus, if you are desirous, you can make me clean. I could be healed from my disease. I could be restored to community. Even if this guy had a family, he would not have been allowed to live with them. He'd had to live apart from them or maybe in a leper colony with other people suffering the same sort of miserable fate. And you can do a lot of things in this situation. There's one thing you cannot do. And Jesus is awesome. Jesus, before he says anything, does the one thing you cannot do. Verse three. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Everybody else is jumping back, moving away. Jesus reached out his hand and touches him and said, I will be clean. And this is, it's not a great translation in English. Not, you know, its not. Jesus is not saying, fine, I'm willing, be clean, cleansed. It's the word for desire. I desire you to be cleansed. But he does what he, he he gives this man what he actually needs first, which human contact, he touches him. Risk being uh, described himself as unclean because he touched this unclean man. I'm sure he hadn't been touched for a long time. He sees what he needs, he sees what true welfare is and he gives it to him. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. There's tons of stuff wrapped in here, but he just wants them restored to society. He seeks his actual welfare at his, the cost of his own personal cost. And then we're not going to read it, just there's a... He, Interacts with a Roman centurion who's not a Jewish man but has some belief in Jesus of some kind and comes and says, can you heal my servant? And he does. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law, the, uh, you know, a, a relative of one of his disciples. So what we see is Jesus being lavishly generous in his kindness. So kindness here is the giving of ourselves for the true welfare of others. Not in a compulsory way, like I have to do this. I'm guilted into it by my pastor or my friends or some commercial I watched. Not in a gratuitous way. That would be to get something from it, like to get payback or to get accolades from the right people. It's like doing something out of the goodness of your heart and then posting about it on social media. Doesn't count. (laughs) This is not kindness. Kindness. It's self-aggrandizement. Not for a feeling of superiority over others who don't act that way. I'm the kind of Christian who does this. Sorry for you Christians who don't do that. Well, yes, what? You're not doing it either. <laughs> um, not for a sense of superiority over the person we are serving. Oh, you poor rabble, let me come and help you, that sort of thing. And not in a complaining way. But in a way that says, I want to. Even though I am tired and pressured, and busy, and even if it costs me a lot. It's a disposition of the heart. How is this developed? Well, it's developed in our actual life. First, where is it developed? It's developed in our actual life, where we are actually apprenticing Jesus. It looks different for each of us, perhaps. It, it, it actually is developed with our neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Your physical neighbor, walk out your door, look across the street, who is that person? Look to your left, look to your right. That's where it starts. I don't know who that person is. Step one, <laughs> knock on your neighbor's door this afternoon, take them some cookies. Um, your team member at work, that's who it starts with. It starts with our own family, our own children, our own in-laws. It starts with our own spouse if you're married our own street our own city right there that's where we apprentice jesus it's not a theoretical reality it's right where we are in the middle of our own prejudices our sins our fears our opportunities working with our own abilities you know uh this, it's, we still live in such a weird world when it comes to men and women issues. I've got two boys and I've, I've always encouraged my boys to be physically strong. Why? So they can serve other people. Of course, we want to be strong, develop skills and competencies in all areas that you can have competency in so you can actually be kind to other people and use your skill, use your ability, use your money, use your physical ability, use your brains to serve other people. Why not be as competent as we can be as long as it's not idolatry? Use our creativity to serve other people, of course. Right, right where we are in your life, that's where you get to apprentice Jesus. So my hunch is that most of us like these sort of ideas but find it hard to come by. Like, I'd like that, but man, I'm so busy. Um, I'm so tired, so pressured, so lacking resources. How, so how is this developed? What's, how is it cultivated? Now we can take a law pathway, which looks something like this. People like me are really good at uh, doing this sort of thing. We're called preachers, right? Um, I could talk about how we wanna be kind to people, but are too busy, and then point out how we can make time for the next Netflix series or a Colts game or a kid's sport. But that's not gospel. Um, I can talk about how we're too resource-tight to really help, and I'd like to help, but man, I, it's really tight because we are going on vacation and I got to get the new iPhone and my new shoes just cost this much. Right? Um, that's not the gospel anyway, either. That's not how actual kindness is developed. How is kindness cultivated in our life? Jean Valjean, that's how. We are not first dispensers of kindness. We are receivers of kindness. How is true kindness from the heart developed in our life toward other people? We must see, open our eyes to, gaze at, grasp, re-grasp, meditate, return to, enjoy, delight in the kindness of God himself to us. That's how. How else? There is no other way. Turn to the back of your insert if you would. Just in closing here, I'm gonna quickly just move through a couple of passages. To billboard the kindness of God, Romans 2. This is a... (laughs) This is a sort of a a blanket accusation against humanity. That's where we are in the book of Romans. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is manifested in his patience toward rebellious people. The reasonable response for all people is to say, you know what, I treat others pretty miserably. I kind of just make up a set of rules, and I expect them to live by them. And I don't really actually, I give myself a lot more grace than I give other people. Um, we should say, you know, that's not right. <laughs> but we don't say that. We should say, that's usurping God's place. But we don't say that. And God, in his response, is very patient and kind. And Paul, the author of Romans here, is saying, the intention of that kindness is to lead people to him. To say, oh, you know, God's really gracious. I think I'll turn to him. Titus 3. This is a... um, Paul's writing to a pastor named Titus about his church. He said, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. But that verse I put in red, so we wouldn't miss it. But when the kindness and love, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This doesn't mean that Jesus came and he's kind like a blanket. You know, it's like, oh, here you go. You can have my kindness. This is saying that Jesus is the kindness of God appearing. What's the kindness of God? Jesus. Because that is him caring for us in our actual need. The kindness of God is Jesus our savior. He did seek our best welfare by coming himself. By giving himself. And how then did he save us? He died. Not because of works done in righteousness, but by one re- because of one reason, his mercy. That's what he's done in the past. But this is one of the most remarkable verses to me in the New Testament. It's back in your insert, Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So this is saying, if you're in Christ, you're united to Christ, in some spiritual way, you are already resurrected with Christ, who is a enthroned in heaven. You are so connected to him that in order for you not to join him one day, he would have to leave heaven and cease to become the second person of the Trinity. That's what it's like for you to be united to Jesus. Look, I love you, but if you're not a Christian, that is not you yet, but he offers that to you. And here's why. This is just so remarkable. Why does he do this? So that you'll be really thankful and obey him. That's not what it says. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's done all this kindness so he can show us more kindness forever and ever and ever. How much it's immeasurable. What does that mean? It means we can't measure it. How do we get used to that? We don't. We don't. That means if we take that to ourself, there's nobody in our life that will be impossible for us to be kind to, if we are rooted in that. It's forever. It's immeasurable. It's offensive to our sense of self, I know that. The antagonist in the novel Les Mis, played by Russell Crowe in the latest, well, one of the latest film adaptations, adaptations, Inspector Javert is a man of strict and brutal law. He hates Jean Valjean. He believes he is a criminal and that he will never, ever change and does not believe Jean Valjean has changed. He believes it's a fake. It's all a fraud. And in the tumultuous um, Parisian environment, there's a rebellion and the working class revolutionaries take over and barricade part of the downtown and they capture Inspector Javert. And Jean Valjean comes, and they're going to execute Javert. And Jean Valjean comes and says, let me do it. If anybody, if anybody deserves to do it, it's the one he's persecuted and chased his entire life. And they're like, that's right. And so Jean Valjean takes Javert and he takes him away, and he lets him go. And this creates an incredible crisis for Inspector Javert because his whole life has been a lie because the grace of kindness really is true. It really can change people. It is an offense to him, he cannot deal with it, and in the novel, he takes his own life, rather than receive the grace that's offered to him. We live in a world that is often unkind. I mean, we have news outlets, I don't wanna be unkind in my judgment here, (laughs) They seem committed to 24 hours of unkindness to other groups. It is so easy to fall into this. I totally, I get it, I know. And I can barely work this out in my own apprenticeship with Jesus, so I don't have a lot of plans for yours. When we treat people based on what they need rather than what we think they've earned from us, when we treat people as those made in the image of God, based on what they need, not on what we think they've earned, we are acting suspiciously like Jesus. When we treat people based on what they actually need, what they actually need, rather than what we think they have earned from us, we are treating people suspiciously like we ourselves have been treated. Grace is an assault on our self-sufficiency. And like Jovert, we tend in our self-sufficiency to push that away. What does Jesus do? When we push that away in his kindness, he pushes right back. He says, I'm coming for you. If you're in me, I'm coming for you and I'm not letting you go. And I press it on you and press it on you and press it on you. And one of the ways we have this pressed up on us each week is we come to the table. This, friends, what's represented here, the, the blood and body of Christ is pictures the strength we have and the kindness to us to turn around and love those in our life well and apprentice Jesus in that. If you're in Christ by faith, I want to invite you to come to this table in a moment and come and take. It is for you. It is Jesus for you.